0: This WestWords Mini Masterclass is a production of WestWords, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on WestWords and what we do, please go to westwords.com.au. Hello and welcome to the WestWords Mini Masterclass for today, Friday the 29th of... April 2022. My name is James Roy, I'm Program Manager at Westwards, and today I'm talking to Georgia Monaghan. Georgia, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, James. Now, a little bit of background, Georgia. I will tell the lovely people listening that you and I work. We were in the same cohort together doing our Masters of Creative Writing at Sydney Uni a few years back. And we've done a bit of... Uh, we certainly were. Yeah, we've done a bit of screenwriting together since then. Uh, and you are currently doing your DCA. Is it a DCA? Is it a PhD? Or is that just another name for the same thing?
1: Um, it's uh, called a The one I'm doing is a Doctor of Arts. Mm-hmm. And it's it's equivalent to a PhD, but in it has a creative component.
0: Right. And I, I remember you talking about what your creative component was. And it was kind of fascinating. It was really around the idea of, uh, of spectacle. And I remember you reading this amazing piece of writing, which is going to be your novel. I, I haven't read any of it for a little while, but about the the babies in uh, at Coney Island who were basically a curiosity in their little humidity cribs, weren't they?
1: Absolutely, yes. So the the um, yeah, I became, I you know, lived in the US for a while and happened to visit Coney Island and just, just had this innate sense that, you know, this, is, this feels like a, like a ruins. Like, you know, this is the ruins of something that was, you know, very different. And I you know, did a tiny bit of research and just was stunned at, you know, in its heyday at the turn of the 20th century, just what a stunning, a spectac- like literally spectacular place it was. And of all the, you know, thousands of absolutely bizarre, you know, you know spectacles and thrills that were available there, actually the most popular over the longest period of time was an in- incubator exhibit where they were displaying, you know, the very first, um, you know, the you know, what we would now I guess call a humidicrib. Right. Uh, for, for premature infants, but at that time they were still calling them an incubator because they were based on, you know, animal incubators. Mm, yeah. And, you know, people would just line up, you know, to see this curiosity, this spectacle of this, you know, these you know, incredibly tiny, vulnerable infants behind glass Um, in these kind of miracle machines that had the possibility of saving their lives. And at this stage, nowhere in the U.S. were hospitals using any form of method to try and save premature infants' lives. At this time, it was still very much um, sort of under this eugenic idea of, you know, you don't don't help the weak (laughs) survive. You know, if if they're if they're weaklings and they literally call them weaklings mm. um you know, then you know, we just don't expect them to survive and nothing's being done. But this uh European doctor from overseas uh, you know, brought the technology uh to America and start but instead of, you know, starting his own hospital, he was a bit of a showman as well and turned it into this exhibit in the middle of an amusement park. <laughs> and yet it was the, you know, it it was actually operating for 40, it didn't stop operating as a curiosity until the 40s. Wow. You know, it started in like you know, 1905 and whereas all the other exhibits that were incredibly, incredibly spectacular and bizarre and you know freakish. Every every new year, every new season, they would they would be sort of replaced. You know, people would get, mm-hmm. oh, we've seen that. You know, we've done that. We bought. You know, they get bored. So, oh, we need to come up with something bigger and better, more crazy to look at. But the these babies were never were kind. You know, the the demand to look at these premature infants never ceased.
0: Did anyone ever follow? That, up, did anyone ever follow up and go, oh, you know, I saw a baby here two years ago. Did, did, did she survive? And is she better now? Like, did anyone? Do we know if anyone yeah, followed up on
1: this? Well, absolutely. Well, the the doctor himself, called Doctor Cooney, he actually would have, um, you know, reunions. And, yeah, and, and, and again, he used it in a showmanship way as a spectacle. And he'd bring the, you know, he'd keep in contact with them and he'd bring back, you know, when they were five, when they were 10, you know, the, the cohorts and bring them back to, to prove, you know, look, you know, look at, look how they start and look at this, you know, robust, healthy. And the, one of the craziest things was his own daughter was born premature mm. and she becomes a nurse. Um, who works in the incubator exhibit? And you know, she you know she was a you know a healthy, um, you know robust woman.
0: And he would like turn to her and say, "See, look, you know, look how strong and big and yeah, But you know, you kind of preempted uh, what, one of my, what my next question was going to be because I, I was actually about to say, and we were talking before we started recording. I was talking about how my youngest daughter was was in a um, in a crib mm. and she was a bit premmy. And if I had Thought for a minute that the hospital that she was, that she was in was selling tickets for people to come and gawp at her, no. I would have lost my mind. I mean, is, no. is that is that something to do with the times that that was just accepted, or were the parents less involved, or and and do we understand why he accepted this when his own daughter had been in that situation?
1: Right. Well, that yeah, there. I mean, there's some amazing um, oral histories um, with some of the. You know the graduates, you might say. You know of the, the actual you know premies that you know that um, survived to you know to this day. Mm. And and you know a lot of you know in a lot of these oral histories there are stories about you know the you know one of the parents you know being hysterical about the thought of their child being put on display in an amusement park where next door is the. You know the two-headed dog, and you know on the other side is you know some hoochie, hoochie coochie dancers, and um, and so you know there was a you know there was real pushback from some people, but then it was like, what's the alternative? Mm. You know, and and ultimately, you know, they would be t- you know the husband perhaps would talk the mother into look, this is her her his or her only chance at survival. Um, and so, you know, just all these, you know, once, when I started learning about this, I thought, oh, I have to write about this.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just,
1: this ha- yeah, I just was so, just so taken by, um, the craziness of it and a human, you know, the, the human child, the human cost and the human emotion around, you know, the most vulnerable of uh, of human
0: life because a couple of doors over there would have been someone there presumably who i don't know had had terrible smallpox as a child and had a horribly scarred face and was being Absolutely. gawped at for having a horribly scarred face but in the case of an adult person or someone who's incredibly tall or someone who's incredibly short i suppose you could make the case that they have enough agency to go well yeah, okay. They're going to give me a bit of money, and it's not great, but at least I'm going to make something from from this disfigurement or yeah. this this disability I have or whatever. But when it's yeah. were, were the parents getting paid for having their children on display? Do you know?
1: No, they weren't getting paid, but they weren't having to pay. Ah, but for them, okay. that this was you know it was free. Like this was free healthcare before free healthcare.
0: Okay, they should maybe um, they should try Medicare rather than having their kids on display. <laughs> I know, I know that exactly. I'm, my conversations exactly. with Americans have been with several Americans have been such that they have struggled to get their head around how uh, socialized um, public health care works, mm, um, and mm. maybe they shouldn't turn to Coney Island for for a demonstration of how that might work.
1: Right, like not not only did they not have to pay. But, and And the reason they didn't have because if they did have to pay, it was a, it was a very highly costly exercise right. um to you know to have all these fully trained nurses round the clock, mm. um, you know tending to them, having midwives round the clock feeding them, um then the cost of the you know the um, machines themselves and then the you know the oxygen and the um, you know the rental of the space and the, so if they were you know it would have been you know exorbitant if and they had it, to
0: pay was it seen as a research facility as well as just a uh, w- w- no. W- no okay i
1: mean I mean he, I mean he would promote it that way yeah he would he kind of you know loved to because he yeah you know, he was sort of half showman but half
2: mm.
1: you know wanting to be a you know seen as a respected you know, medical professional. And so he, you know, he would try to give it over that way, but, you know, the hospitals weren't interested. No one was, you know, no universities or hospitals were interested in, you know, um, observing or taking records, you know, using it as a training facility or a research facility. Um, so, you know, it was the, you know, the, the 10 and 15 and 25 cents admissions Mm -hmm. that were, you know, were, you know, paying for these, um, uh, for the exhibit to to continue, Mm -hmm. but not, like, not only did they not have to pay, they would get a free pass for the season, the parents, so they could come and visit, you know, they wouldn't have to pay to (laughs) see their child. It gets
0: better and better.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they and you know, yeah, you, know, you can literally see, you know, you know, There's these free passes, like a season pass, free season pass, that the parents would be given that would allow them to get into the line but not have to pay and come and visit their child throughout oh, throughout the summer season.
0: I, I feel deeply uncomfortable about this situation. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that was over 100 years ago because it was happening. Yeah, right now, you
1: know. oh, <laughs> it is. It's it's. Um, no, you know, I feel very conflicted about it. You know, are they being, you know, they're being exploited. sceptical. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Spectacle.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, profit, they're being, you know, profit's being made. But there was, there was, you know, absolutely no other alternative. And the, the you know, the records show that the number of, because there are records of, you know, how many infants were taken in and how many survived and the rate of survival for these infants is, you know, like, you know, triple what, the, you know, a Premier that did not get into mm. one of these, you know, that didn't get to be exhibited. So, you know, real lives were saved, mm. but in such a um, perverse, um, you know,
0: framework. It's almost like that they, they, they were saved sort of as part of it, but not as the main focus of it.
1: Yes, exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, um, when I was in China a couple of years ago, I went to the um, the panda exhibit, the uh, panda place in Chengdu, which is one of the leading panda research centres in the world. And, you know, you pay however much to get in and go and look at the pandas, but there's also the, the big facility there, which is where they actually, um, you know, have the baby pandas and all the rest. And you can pay additional money to go in there and actually Kind of have a look at the facilities, and when you go in there and you pay the money and you go in there, you can see where every cent is going. But it's pretty clear that that money mm. is all getting ploughed straight back into helping pandas. Mm. But it doesn't sound like this Kearney mm. dude was doing that. Um,
1: no, no, because it. I mean, you know, it, the the facility was run you know, impeccably, not really because of you know because of his expertise so much as. That his head nurse, who he had also brought from uh, France, um, over, and her name was uh, Madame Louise Recht, and she, you know, she had worked in some of the first, um, you know, innovative, you know, groundbreaking um, French hospitals in Paris that were beginning to develop this technology. So. You know, she really was the, the brains. You know, the the know-how, the expertise behind the whole thing, and she, you know, she ran it so that everything was impeccably clean. And you know that you know before people even really understood the full importance of you know sterilising babies, and she was you know a fanatic about that and ran this place as neat as a pin. By way of segue.
0: Um, you've taken this story that you stumbled across, I suppose, when you were at, at Coney Island and you, you thought I can, you know, like all, all writers, you thought to yourself, what can I make of this? What is the story here? How do I tell the story? Mm, mm. Um, so I guess my question for you is, how is this, what, what questions did this, did this raise in an academic? Sense so it's not just about you writing a, a historical novel. What are, what's the mm. academic question? Because we're going to get what we're going to get onto talking about is is the idea of um, the role of academic um, learning in
1: the practice mm. of an
0: artist. Um, so what was your angle? What did you look at and go, oh, that's a question I need to answer through my research. Right. Well, I start you know I, you
1: know. When I started off the idea, of course, all my focus was on, you know, Dr. Cooney. And I imagined that he would be, if not the protagonist, at least, you know, one of the protagonists. And, <clears throat> yeah, just the more I started to, you know, develop the idea and the more I started to, you know, start to learn about, like, this Madame Ricks and And I'm like, hang on. And then this place is being run by women nurses. You know, all female nurses and I just got more and more intrigued with hang on there's you know with the the sort of female aspect um, of this enterprise and who you know who were these nurses and you know that you know what was their perspective and why were they there and you know that you know this woman that has all the expertise and she is virtually just completely overlooked, like you can, you know, probably find like five sentences on Madame Rect, but there's, you know, but like Dr. Cooney, he did interviews for the New Yorker, you know, extensive interviews that you can find, and so, you know, he's very much in the, you know, covered in the history, but what about these, you know, these unknown women?
0: Oh, uh, Georgia! Look, great, I used to be a registered nurse. I can tell you now that the uh, <laughs> oftentimes it's the registered or the nurses who do all the uh, the real work. But we won't get into that. I'm not exactly. bitter at all. Yeah. Exact,
1: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then as I was sort of looking at this period of time, I'm starting. I'm realizing, on, this is the period of the suffragettes. Mm. Yeah, you know, and this is the and you know, the fact that women were working as nurses. You know, today we take that for granted. And we, and it's almost like oh, traditional female job. Mm. Yeah, at this time it was actually quite radical for women, you know, to become nurses. Like in the, you know, in the Civil War, you know, the majority of nurses were male. Right. Um, so it's actually a radical change to bring women into the workforce. And so at this period, you've got all these women coming into the workforce. You've got this suffragette movement, and then and I started to learn about this idea of the new woman. And and then I was also very aware of this idea of spectacle with Coney Island, and and you know with you know when you when you're doing a degree in you know a, a you know postgraduate degree in creative writing, um, you know there has to be an academic element to it, and so and you have a supervisor, and I you know, had a meeting with my supervisor, um, the wonderful Dr. Matthew Sussman, and. Yeah, and we had a meeting to talk about you know what is going to be your academic what is going to be the academic angle on this. And I said, look, I'm fascinated in the the idea of spectacle in during this period and as it continues today because I think we are just living in an you know an age of spectacle. Um, you know, if ever there were you know for the last few years of especially in American politics, haven't proven that. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of spectacle, but I'm really interested in this idea of the new woman. This, you know, this new idea of womanhood and what wo- womanhood can be compared to the traditional Victorian woman, angel of the house, um, who's subservient and pure and pious, and and you know, her whole life is is within the four walls of a house. <clears throat> and he said, "Well, why don't you put the two together?" And I'm like, oh. And uh, to me, at first, I thought, oh, that kind of sounds a bit random. You know, you know, who says, you know, who, who says that there would be any cross, any intersection, any interrelationship between spectacle and the new woman? And the minute I started researching, I'm like, oh, you know, oh my goodness, it's just off the chart. And the suffragettes, particularly. Youth spectacle, you know, created the, and the New York suffragettes in particular, copying off the British, very militant suffragettes. Mm. There was this really interesting relationship between the London suffragette movement and the New York City suffragette movement. And they started borrowing all their str- these very spectacular strategies of, um, you know, of parading in city streets of you know, get you know, even just you know, a woman standing on a street corner on a soapbox proclaiming feminist ideas was just scandalous, mm. you know, at that period. And this is what they started doing. And the just, the just the sight of a woman speaking in public in this period was just you know mind blowing. And the whole idea of the the London and the New York City suffrage movement was to get in the papers.
0: It was a very media-savvy <laughs> right.
1: um, strategy. And, if they it and if so had, Twitter,
0: like, if had Twitter, they would have been all over that, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, they, they wanted to get in the newspapers. Yeah. And for a long time, you know, through the whole you know, 1800s, they were the newspapers just ignored them or, or made fun of them and then through these very spectacular methods, um, and they'd even put suffragettes in, in department store windows. You know, you know, so this really interesting, you know, crossover between commodification and the suffragette movement and spectacle. Mm. Um, so this whole idea, and then I was, you know, because I'm writing a novel um, about... You know this time period, and about you know Coney Island and spectacle, and the new woman. And the more I wrote it, the more the new woman aspect of it really grew. Um. So, so for my academic work, I thought, well, let's look at some novels that deal with the new woman in this period because I'm I'm writing one. You know, a hundred years later, mm. over a hundred years later. Um, let's look at the novels that were written in, in that time period
2: mm. that
1: featured new women. And there was this genre of new woman novels. And and then I was like, well, you know, you know, I'm particularly interested in New York City. And I was starting to see that the New York City new woman, there was something you know, quite different and unique about her compared to other places, and especially in, like, say, New England or the South. And I wanted to see, you know, is this being re- reflected in the literature that was written at the time? And 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 it, you know, the more I researched, the more I found that that it was, and that even though it's kind of surprising how few novels there are about New York City new woman, new women, written during the period, when you do dig them up and find, and a lot of them are obscure and have been overlooked and ignored by academia. Uh, there's one fantastic novel I found called The American Suffragette, um, you know, literally called The American Suffragette about a New York City, New Woman novel. There is not one journal article on this novel and it is just full of, you know, spectacle and, you know, the, 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 all these ideas about new womanhood and socialism and it's just, such a fascinating novel, and you know, not a single, you know, bit of academic scholarship has mm. been
0: done on this novel. Well, the American writers in this kind of field were they a little bit behind the the British? Because by this stage, of course, you'd had you had um, the Bronte sisters and and so on. Is, were, were the Americans a little bit late to the party with this? In the,
1: in one way, yes, you know, in you know, not not completely, but definitely. If you look at even just say the 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 sheer number of novels, like I think in like a you know five or ten year period, there was like over a hundred new woman novels written in the UK,
2: mm.
1: and a lot of um, you know the readership of them was was yeah you know, they were bestseller yeah they were bestsellers, Then, you had you know you had also the more art house the ones written in a sort of literary style were, um, you know, just runaway successes as well as, you know, critically acclaimed. So there was a, and, you know, in the newspapers at the time, there was a very, a
0: real consciousness of these new woman novels. And who was buying in, them? Was it women buying them mostly?
1: Mostly women, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, America, there is not as many um you know there's def- you know there's definitely not as many and even in the period there wasn't as much discussion critically about them mm. but um, but there are some you know canonical novels that i'm looking at now and going so say Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser and Washington Square by Henry James i'm looking at them and going hang on i think these are new woman novels both set in new york city but no one has looked at them in that light. So I'm re- I'm discovering novels that have never been, never seen the light of day, as far as academia is concerned. But also other novels that are, you know, had, you know, libraries of work written on them, but not looking at them as New York City novels that are dealing with the phenomenon of the new woman and how that connects with spectacle.
2: Mm.
1: So it's just the Carrie by Dreiser you know, this this new this woman who becomes a new woman, how does she do it? By becoming an actress on the stage.
2: Right.
1: That's how she achieves independent new womanhood. Is she, you know, she tries the factory system and she just can't make ends meet and she's sort of forced to, you know, rely on men, um, and sort of, you know, engage in these, you know, relationships that um you know could be seen almost as legal prostitution
2: mm.
1: um, to to make ends meet but when she finds that she has a talent for the stage you know suddenly she's able to make real money and sh- and her you know through her fi- through the spectacle of female beauty mm. she uh, you know she becomes you know completely financially independent and is able to get rid of the men in her life that had been there really just to help her make ends meet
2: mm.
1: um so yeah you, know, you know sister carrie you know in, is a you know there's you know very little scholarship that looks at it in that framework and that's part of my academic work as well
0: so um we could talk about this for i mean you've been working on this for how long two and a half years something like that or longer. <laughs> So, uh even longer than that longer, yeah so, so of course we <laughs> we could talk about this for much longer but i, I do kind of want to get to something that we were originally going to talk about but this has been really fascinating to discuss uh discuss what you've been talking about uh, but i wanted to ask you about uh creative writing uh postgraduate studies or even or even undergraduate studies uh, mm. now i in my own case, in my own case, what I, what I did was I I re, uh, signed up for the Masters of Creative Writing because I'd written lots of books and wanted to actually fill in mm. some um, mm. some knowledge gaps, you know. And so I was fortunate; I got to do I got to do screenwriting of Ian David, and I did poetry with Judith Beveridge, and and so on and so forth. And so I certainly filled in some knowledge gaps there. But I know there were other people there who were very much at the early part of their career. As writers, or and or as, um, as scholars of of any kind, now, some were younger, mm. some were older. What was your reason for going and doing initially the masters and then the PhD? Was it just purely a a, a yearning to understand better or to write better? What was what was the driving force for your decision to go into it?
1: Um, that's that's such a good question. Um, so I had, you know, I had. I think since you know late high school, you know, yeah, you know, I, you know, like most, like most writers, had been a massively avid reader, you know, from the minute I could read, and you know, just a complete love affair with books and literature and, and the written word and word just words, you know, just you know, collecting words. Um, And then, you know, naturally kind of led from that into, oh, you know, I'd love to write. And then even in school, getting a lot of feedback from teachers that saying, oh, you know, this was a pleasure to read or, um, you know, just getting this feedback that and kind of feeling like, wow, I can just express myself in words so much more easily in, in the written word than in the spoken word. And, you know, but, you know, like my, you know, I my both my parents were immigrants. Um, you know, one from Scotland, one from Greece. No one in my family, you know, on either side had any university background, literary background. Um, my grandfather read a lot. Uh, he was a passionate reader and he would take me to the library. Um, but it's, but, you know, as, you know, you sort of, you sort of have this idea. Oh, I'd love to write, but yeah, you know, I just didn't even see like how that's even possible. And so, you know, kind of went into you know education and and um, English studies and and uh, you know you know teaching, you know teaching literature. And but yeah, you know, it just kept coming back to me like this. Is, kind of realizing this is not my first love. This is a substitute for my first love.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and finally kind of getting to a point where you're like, okay, I, I want to give it, I want to do something that, you know, makes that makes me put this top priority, you yeah. know, in my, in my, you know, professional life or um, in my vocational life, let's say. And I kept finding ways, because I, I read this book um, called, not the, not the art of war, but the war of art.
2: Right.
1: And it, it just, it made everything made sense to me. So it talks about it, when you have this desire to be an artist of any kind, there is, well, I don't know where it comes from, but there's some there's this inner resistance to it there's something in you even though it's the thing you most want to do mm. there's something in you that it you don't want to do it but you want to do it and you will find you know because it's you know it's scary it's like you know can i do it will it be good if i do if i write something good today Can I do that
0: again tomorrow? See, I find this really interesting Um, because, um, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just sort of want to jump on something you just said there because mm. in my own, you know, to to personalise it for me, it was I was constantly, like most writers um, or artists, I was beset with self-doubt because I kept accidentally, or so it felt to me, accidentally writing books. And it kind of became (laughs) clear to me eventually that, okay, you do kind of know what you're doing but maybe you need to put something more formal around it. But you're talking about having this this great sense of doubt and um, and not feeling like you could even get going until you had dealt with that.
1: Right. Well, I felt it like I would, you know, I'd, I'd go, okay, I've got this great idea and I, I can't tell you how many novels I've started. Um, I'd have this great idea and I'd start it and then, you know, you kind of get, going and then you kind of maybe hit a roadblock mm. and then it'd be like oh this is uncomfortable and then it's like oh is it any good I don't know and and then some shiny thing talking about spectacles some shiny thing would kind of get my attention and I go oh I'll do that that would be actually easier so I literally started a literary journal from scratch in the United States you know developed a whole team of volunteers including like you know, editors that used to edit for the Yale Review, um, you know, people that, you know, had won, you know, all kinds of literary prizes on the editorial board, you know, got funding, you know, got, you know, found sponsors, you know, did promotion, worked out how, you know, for never having done any of this before you know, how do you get something published, you know, how, you know, dealing with, so you know, CYMK and RGB and, you know, advertising and did, you know, created this thing. And I look back and I think it was a, it was a, a way of not doing my own creative writing <laughs> is actually what it was. Yeah, yeah indeed. I yeah. think, wouldn't doing the creative
0: writing be way easier than all that? But it actually wasn't. Well, you'd think so. I mean, like... <laughs> the point I was going to make, I guess, is that I, I, anyone who's listened to this podcast will have heard me say this before, but I think with it, if you happen to be able to kind of just persist and get it done with or without um, training or, or um, academic study, there does come a point after a few where it, when you do hit that roadblock, roadblock you described, You kind of go, Mm. okay, this feels like a roadblock, but I have confidence that this too shall pass because it has all these times in the past. I know now that this Mm. is just something that happens every time it's temporary. But that's not something that you can kind of draw on if you, as you say, have kept avoiding pushing past that by looking for the next shiny thing.
1: Right. Exactly. And so eventually I thought, hang on, if I do. And so when I was in the. Because I've never, never even heard of Masters of Creative Writing, or in the US, it's a Master of Fine Arts, in, an MFA in Creative Writing. So when I was in the US, I met a lot of people. I lived in a town that was very literary and met a lot of people that had done them and got to know them and talked to them about it. And I'm like, oh, wow. And I thought, and so I knew we were coming back to Australia. And I thought, okay, I realised, okay, I'm going to. I had to bring the literary magazine to an end to move back. And I thought, okay, this time I am not going to do this again. I am not going to distract myself by anything else. That that, and it was always something where I was helping other people do their writing. Mm. You know, I'm mentoring other people. I'm teaching them. I'm, you know, helping other people get published. And so it was always sort of an auxiliary, like it was very close, it was around it. And this book, The, the War of Art, talks about that, that often creative people will become you know, agents or they'll, um, you, know, you know, they'll be on the periphery of the thing that they really want to do but are too scared to do it themselves. So I thought, okay, I need something that is going to hold me accountable. That and I'm I'm the type of person if I start something I will finish it. I'm very sort of deadline oriented. So I thought I need accountability and I need to feel and I thought, yeah, I think a masters would be perfect. And the the only thing with a with the Masters of Creative Writing is most it's a the Masters of Creative Writing is by coursework, um, and so it was actually a lot of um, you know units of study. It, it, it there wasn't a lot of, I mean, there's definitely quite a bit of scope to do your own work, your own writing, but there was also you know a requirement to you know do work that wasn't yeah. your own work, which I I guess like even in the doctorate there's that. Um, but I, so I found. Again, it was like, oh, I could get distracted by the academic subject Mm. or the academic, more academic of the assignments, you know, researching writers and and that. Um, And so I, you know, as much as I I did get more of my own writing done during the Masters, um, by the end of it, I was like, yeah, because I was still a lot of focus on the learning and i think because i you know i had done a lot of literary study prior to the, the masters i it was i didn't feel like oh i need more um you know knowledge on, on the skills and the the building blocks of writing I, I i sort of felt like i had done enough study of that not not like just in the study of literature itself, mm-hmm. I felt I kind of had that. Um, what I what I really was looking for was, you know, mentor, yeah, encour- encourages, uh, you know, someone to 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 be accountable to to keep to keep moving forward with the writing, mm-hmm. and that's where the doctorate. Um, was you know was perfect for me and I was able to you know go from the masters into the doctorate because now you've got you know 60,000 um, you know up, up to 60,000 words of creative writing that you're you know being asked to do and you know you know you know 20 to 30% 20 to 30,000 of the academic writing but the vast majority is is on the creative. And I, I sort of made myself start on the creative. And then, you you know, you have a supervisor who every month is there asking to see ball material. And, you know, and, you, know you have someone who's your cheerleader, your mentor, you know, your critic, um, you know, being, you know, you're kind of one of your first readers, um, you know, asking you, you know, really thoughtful questions Questions, making you aware where things aren't clear, where they are clear. So it sounds
0: to me, yeah. Sorry, it sounds to me like you sort of have to come to it quite honestly and and not not uh, look. (laughs) Full disclosure: when I did my master's dissertation, I I don't think that my dissertation itself would have passed muster in any kind of peer-reviewed form. But my creative uh, work was went quite well and so that was you know i got a okay mark because of that but i think you've got it sounds like you've learned that you have to be honest and go the stuff that i'm i'm learning from the research i'm doing has to inform the book but at the same time writing the book has to be raising questions that i want to deal with in my research
1: right yes because because there's, there's supposed to be a completely symbiotic relationship right. between
0: the two. Yeah, well, mine was very post, um, mine was very post-hoc. It was <laughs> post grad and <laughs> post-hoc. It was uh, write the piece <laughs> and then find something to support it. Which I, and I hope none of my um, markers are listening right now because they might kind of want want to take my degree back. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so what do well, you?
1: Well, I mean, my in, in my, my in my masters with my dissertation, I kind of feel the same way mm. that you know, the writing came first. And then it was, you know, oh my goodness! Now I've got to work out, find a question how, you know, to respond to, to. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was very aware of how difficult that was mm. when you try to, you know, reverse engineer the academic part. And so when I started the doctorate, I was like, okay, I'm going to start this. So I, I did actually spend a lot of time thinking about you know, what is the connection going to be and doing the the academic research, you know, you know, a good, you know, month or two of solid academic research before I started the creative writing. Yeah. And so I, I really, I had a theoretical framework, I had an academic framework in mind. So as I was writing, you know, it, it, it was there. And, you know... Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, one of the advantages of, of doing a doctorate is you have this opportunity to, you know, there are travel grants available to do research. And because I was studying something um, that had a, you know, that was based in another country, you know, I was able to apply for and I received grants to go to New York City and to go into the archives. And um, you know to to find you know original uh, research and, and even just walk the streets of the where my scenes are going to be set.
0: Well, I got to go and, to I got uh, to go to Eden for mine. So you know, <laughs> it's not quite, Eden's lovely, but it's not quite New York City, is it?
1: No, but I mean, yeah, that, yeah. That that was definitely one advantage of doing the doctorate Is you have you know there there is a lot of um, support mm. or, you know financial support to, you know, to help facilitate your writing. Mm. Um, so, when it, you know, when I do that, you know, you know, I would, you know, anything I would find in an archive, I would always be looking at it through two lenses.
2: Yeah.
1: One was, oh, how could this fit in a novel? And the other was, oh, maybe this will be part of my evidence yeah. in my academic work.
0: And if you were going um, back and working on your Master's again now, would you... Would you delib- more deliberately go into it with that kind of symbiotic approach?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I, I yeah, you know, I just had—I just felt like I was beating my head against a brick wall. Like that whole dissertation process, I found, you know, it was it was quite. You know, I got there in the end, but it, it was a very bit of a painful one mm-hmm. because it was all being done after the fact. Whereas doing that kind of, you know, hand in hand. Mm. Um, it just felt so much more organic right. and natural. And, and I would, I mean, you know, I would, you know, see things and I would immediately think, oh, that that can fit into the, what we call the exegesis, the academic writing in this way. And then, oh, I actually might use that line of dial, you know you find a letter or
0: something you go oh that's a line of dialogue for a character <laughs> indeed so very very quickly before we wrap up because we've, we've spoken for quite a while um <laughs> if you were to offer some advice to anyone who came to you and said i'm thinking about doing either a an undergrad um creative writing course or or a postgraduate um master's or a, or a doctorate or whatever what what would your advice be to them
1: Oh, that's such a great idea. I mean, as an undergrad, I would highly recommend, you know, doing a creative writing subject. Um, I actually teach um, a second year creative writing class at the University of Sydney. And I was was really thrilled that, you know, half the class were doing dentistry and, you know, law and... Um, science and and well, law, I, law, right?
0: Yet because I mean, lawyers <laughs> tend to make stuff up, don't they? I know that's, a, that's a, that that joke's pretty low hanging fruit. I accept it, but you know, there's some truth <laughs> to it, right? But yeah, I, I was
1: thrilled that people who, who had no desire to do writing, you know, as a full time vocation, mm. were taking it as a you know as an elective, and. And just really enjoying expressing their creativity and exercising their creativity, you know, as one subject, you know, alongside maybe a very science-based degree or economics-based degree. Mm. So I would recommend to anyone, especially to do like a first or second year um, creative writing course. I think it's, uh, you know, that they're, they're fun. They're, you know, so
0: creative, and it and improves your improves your communication skills. I know that yes. sounds like a throwaway line, but anyone who has a bit of a grasp, a better grasp on storytelling, um, mm. is you know, tends to be, uh, I think, a little bit more adept at communicating and and uh, working mm. in the real world.
1: Brian, right. so so then, you know, as far as advances, I think. Um, you know it, for, for people that are looking to get some groundwork in mm. in creative writing skills, you know, I think it's brilliant. Um, you know I think I think it's a uh, you know, if, if you feel like you know you've got the interest, you've got the desire, you feel like you've got a natural talent, uh, you feel like maybe you're missing in the mechanics, or um, you, know, you, you sort of feel like you could go further, like you feel like you're hitting a the, the plateau yeah. as far as quality or depth or innovation in your writing goes, then you know, I think it you know, definitely is, is something that I'll, I would highly recommend. Um, of course, you know, some people you know, you know, are looking to teach, and mm-hmm. it's, it's to teach creative writing. And you know that that is a a great avenue for that. And I know even with the doctorate, you know there are very established writers, you know with you know half a dozen novels, you know you know published out in the world that will choose to do a doctor of art for the academic accreditation, which then allows them to then you know teach at a university level. Um, so going in, into the doctorate, um, you know, think if you're thinking, you yeah, know, would the doctorate be good for you? Um, you know, if you're, you know, I think, you know, you have to really be prepared, I think, and enjoy the academic yeah. as well as the creative. So it's about a 70-30% split. But the academic, you yeah, it's not just something you, you know, whip off at the you know, the end of your degree, right. it's a very rigorous, thorough, you know, academically, you know, of a very, you know, you are required to write work that is a very yeah. high standard that is cre- actually creating new knowledge. Right. So it's not just, you yeah, know. adding
0: to the re- sort of the pantheon of understanding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. So, you know, you. I think, I think it works. Best if you have that academic interest as well, which I do have. Mm. And you know, one of the problems, maybe for me, is that again, I can use the academic writing mm. as an escape from the creative. <laughs>
0: <Right. Yeah. laughs>
1: so it's like, oh, here we go again.
0: I think the only and thing I would counsel, like, oh, sorry, sorry, continue, sorry.
1: No. Um, And so I I actually, you know, and as much as, you know, know, I've never done, I've never produced as much consistent work on one project Mm. through doing this doctorate than, you know, than outside of the doctorate. So for me, it's been a huge success because I'm, you know, I've, you know, almost
0: written the first book of, you know, my first novel. What's it going to be Um, called, by the way, so that we can look out for it?
1: Right. Well, at the working title at the moment is Dreamland. Right. And um, I think there's – I mean, I know there's going to be more than one. Um, you know, it's going to be at least, a tr- you know, either a trilogy or – I don't know. There will be a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either going to be either a two-book a a two novel or a three-book novel, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and so I've kind of – I'm thinking maybe Dreamland will be the name of the the series and then I might come up with individual names for the different uh, okay. novels. So I'm thinking possibly of the first one being called Under the Dreamland Banner called Coney Island Baby. Right. Um, in, inspired by the, the uh, Lou Reed song. Mm-hmm. And the second one I'm thinking of calling Suffragette City.
2: Right.
1: Um, again, inspired by a song title. Mm. Um, but is that, that's, you know, they're, still, they're still working titles. Um, but.
0: Uh, well, it's been fascinating to talk with you, Georgia Monaghan, <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> We've kind of gone a little bit over time, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time um oh anytime all the best with with your study we do look forward to reading it i mean i I remember reading reading some of your very early draft during the masters and i was very taken with the, the quality of the writing and and the story that you were you were um you were telling so i'm i'm pretty excited to read it when it's finished but uh in the meantime all the best with your studies and we'll stay in touch and uh thank you for talking to us
1: oh thank you it's been a pleasure